Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Your Word is truth. And Your Word um, tells us about our Lord Jesus Christ who is the truth incarnate who came from the Father full of grace and truth. I pray that uh, Your Word would have its full effect um, among us this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. I've been concerned just, I guess, more than just recently, but um, recently it uh, continually comes before my mind just um, how our um, our culture, in terms of this commitment to the truth, that that commitment is eroding. And last week I spoke about the concept of relativism. Uh, this week I intend to continue to address how we have, as a culture, lost our commitment to truth. In verse 38, Paul, uh, the, uh, Pilate uh, asked Jesus, what is truth? And it's clear to me that this question sprung more from Pilate's frustration than it did from his curiosity. But it's an important question for us to consider as we live in a, cult, in a culture that is asking this question, what is truth? And uh, is finding um, in this question less importance when it comes to truth. You know, this question about what is truth, uh, Western culture has been asking uh, this question since uh, well before Jesus was born here on the, on the earth. About the year 400 B.C. When, Pi, when Plato began writing his dialogues, uh, he began asking this question in earnest. And he believed that truth could only be discovered by logical thought. He came to be known as a rationalist. In other words, only what was rational could be real. So, for instance, the law of non-contradiction would be a, uh, a certainty. Or the concept of 2 plus 2 equals 4. Well, that, he would say, is a truth. So as long as you could prove something to be logically correct by using rational thought, then it must be true. Plato would argue. But Plato's student, Aristotle, came along and he disagreed. He said that which was observable by the senses was real. What you can touch, what you can feel, what you can smell, what you can taste, what you can hear, these things that we can observe by the senses, this is what is real. Aristotle said. And so Aristotle came to be known as an empiricist. And an empiricist believed only what is observable by the senses is real. And so the debate began between Plato and his student Aristotle, and it continued for over 2,000 years. 
And it greatly, their debate uh, greatly shaped Western culture. Philosophers throughout the ages took up the argument on one side or the other. Some were rationalists, some were empiricists. Many tried to blend the two concepts, but they would start uh, invariably uh, with an emphasis on rationalism or an emphasis on empiricism, and they never really could blend the two together. This argument, uh, as I said, lasted for over 2,000 years. And the reason why this argument has lasted so long is because each school of thought had great difficulties that could not be finally overcome. Now, I'm greatly oversimplifying things, but I think I can illustrate the differences for you. For instance, it is rationally provable that each line has a midpoint. So between this point and this point, there's a midpoint. Therefore, we can safely say that the distance between myself and poor Ethan is closest to me. Um, so he'll be my example this morning. Um, uh, the, the distance between myself and Ethan, well, there's a midpoint. And between that midpoint and myself, there's another midpoint. Logically, there is a midpoint between every no matter how small you get, there's an infinite number of midpoints or therefore an infinite number of points um, on this line between myself and Ethan. So logically speaking, I would have to cross over an infinite number of points to get to Ethan. Therefore, it would take me an eternity to get to Ethan so I could not... Uh, reach him. So if I really wanted to punch Ethan, and it would be all uh, just his imagination that I would come down here and punch him. Because logically speaking, motion is impossible because you would have to cross over an infinite number of points. I was hoping to at least see some glimmer of fear in his eyes. This um, this illustration is uh, called Zeno's Paradox. And so for a rationalist to be consistent, they would always need to reject movement. Uh, for a rationalist to be consistent, they will always end up doubting things that are uh, observable with our senses. And that's why the famous French rationalist and mathematician René Descartes famously said, I think, therefore I am. In other words, that was the only uh, ground for him believing that he existed, is that he was able to think. Because as a rationalist, he could only trust his power to think as the only observable um, uh reality that he could see. He even said that he doubted, or rather, he said he could not even know for certain whether he was married to his wife. How would you like to be Mrs. Descartes? An empiricist, those who um, believe only what is real is what is observed, 
Well, they're also um, in a bad spot. Because all a rationalist has to do is demonstrate that things that are observable by our senses are unreliable uh, by simply taking a glass of water and a pen and sticking the pen into the glass of water. You know what happens. Even the elementary age children can tell us what happens when they look at the pen and the water. The pen appears to bend. We call it refraction. So a rationalist could point to several examples where our senses lead us away from the truth rather than toward the discovery of truth. And so an empiricist would say a rationalist um, loses all sense of reality because of their consistent rationalism. And a rationalist would say to the empiricist that you lose all sense of reality because of your empiricism. These arguments came to a head in the 16 and 1700s with the rise of the British empiricist, uh, most notably led by, and you'll probably recognize some of these names, Francis Bacon, Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, George Berkeley, and of course David Hume. They effectively crushed the rationalist. They seemed to win the argument. But in so doing, they also crushed themselves. David Hume embraced the devastating conclusions of his philosophy. He was an empiricist. He said that what is true is what is observable. But then he... he um, understood that if you're going to make that commitment, then you must doubt what you know. Um, so he doubted that there was any truth. There was no certainty. He said it is only probable that all men must die or that the sun will rise tomorrow. Just because it has done that for the past several thousand years, uh, the sun's risen and every person has had to die. Well, how do we know things won't change tomorrow? How do we know that things won't change later? Hume concluded that things such as belief in an external world, such as we live in, and belief in the existence of the self, were not rationally justifiable. So you could not, um, even even though he said that what is observable is what is real. It really led him to doubt everything that was observable. Now, Hume did not become the last uh, word in the argument about how we acquire knowledge or how we acquire truth. Immanuel Kant, a Prussian philosopher, was so shaken by Hume's uh, conclusions that he invented a whole new way of looking at the question of how we acquire knowledge. He said, all our knowledge begins with the senses, proceeds then to the understanding, and ends with reason. He said, there's nothing higher than reason. And what he did was he cleverly moved the basis for our knowledge from that which is out there to inside us. In other words, 2 plus 2 equals 4, that is true whether we believe it or not. But he took that knowledge 
of 2 plus 2 equals 4 and put it inside us. Or um, from an empiricist standpoint, you know, a tree is out there. A tree's not inside us. But what Immanuel Kant did was he ended up saying a tree is not a tree until we interpret it to be a tree. And so he took the knowledge um, acquisition and placed it inside of us. Uh, rather than leaving it outside of us. In other words, Immanuel Kant turned us into knowledge interpreters. We filter and interpret reality as it comes to us through our cognitive grid. We sort it out. We interpret it. Almost like I have glasses. You know, now you're a bunch of fuzzy people. I can't, I could not recognize any of you. But all of a sudden, I put on my glasses and I'm able to recognize um, the cook or the Fernandez family sitting up in the, uh, the top row of the balcony. We filter in, and interpret reality as it comes to us. In other words, we determine reality according to our, our interpretation, according to Immanuel Kant. We give truth to the world around us. In other words, Immanuel Kant placed humans in the place of God by making us truth givers. I've taken all the time, and even more so than I wanted to allot to this subject, um, but I do want to point out that it was Immanuel Kant's philosophy as Hegel took up his philosophy and, and uh, pushed it forward. But it was Immanuel Kant's philosophy that ultimately gave us gave rise to communism, to fascism. Uh, it was Immanuel Kant's philosophy that uh, stood behind Hitler's Mein Kampf. The 20th century would have been would have looked very differently had Immanuel Kant never lived. And the error of his thinking, the vicious error of his thinking, was he turned us into God by making us the interpreters and, um, and deciders of truth. We continue to live in Immanuel Kant's world. Postmodernism is essentially Immanuel Kant's philosophy. I want to speak to our youth for just a few moments. You're going to hear as you grow up and go off to college that Christians have preconceived notions about truth. That Christians have preconceived notions about creation. That Christians have preconceived notions about what is right or what is wrong. What is true or what is false. And they're going to tell you that you are being um, that you're being like an ostrich sticking your head into the sand, that you are denying truth because you have preconceptions that you take in your examination of the truth. But they won't tell you that at the very same time they have their own preconceived notions about truth. They have their own preconceived notions about the creation of the universe, about what is right or wrong. And without God, an unbeliever 
cannot justify any concept of truth. The whole history of philosophy, as I just outlined it, uh, proves that point. Uh, without God, an unbeliever has no concept of right or wrong or any concept of reality or of justice. You can't have justice without a judge. You can't have truth without a truth giver. And so, you don't have to act like, you don't have to think that you're being an ostrich and sticking your head in the sand uh, to be a Christian. Christians believe in biology. Christians believe in astronomy. Christians believe in physics. We believe all truth is God's truth. And so we do not back down for a second. Truth is the foundation of all knowledge and is the cement for any society. You get rid of truth and it becomes quicksand. Truth is always strong, no matter how it looks. And falsehood, young people, is always weak no matter how strong it looks. Much of what is being passed off as science in the universities is really a philosophy of science that's packaged as simple scientific observation. Much of what is being presented as science is really science with an agenda. And so young people, I want you to recognize that there is truth, that God is the truth giver, and that you uh, in you glorify God by looking at the truth, examining the truth, seeking to think God's thoughts after Him. Now, we left off last week with Jesus being on trial before Annas. But after Jesus was transferred... Um, from Annas, he went to Caiaphas for trial. And you will remember that this is in the middle of the night. It is likely that the religious leaders adjourned for a couple of hours um, so that they could then take Jesus before Pilate at the, the earliest possible moment. The historians believe it was probably about 5 a.m. when they um, could take Jesus before Pilate. And the religious leaders, they could have stoned Jesus just like they did Stephen a few weeks later. But that would not suit their purposes. They needed Pilate to sentence Jesus to death by hanging on a cross because the religious leaders knew that the Old Testament taught that since the Bible said that everyone who's hung on a tree is a curse, that they realized if we hang Jesus on a tree and he is then perceived of as being a curse, it would discredit him in the eyes of the people. Little did they know just how cursed Jesus would be as all of our sins were placed upon him while he hung on that cross and the Father struck him because Christ became a curse for us. Verses 33 through 38 record Jesus' appearance before Pilate. I'm not going to go into detail about the specifics. In fact, I'm going to try and uh, move us to a conclusion as soon as possible. 
Jesus said twice in verse 36 that His kingdom is not of this world. In so doing, Jesus is acknowledging that He's a king. Secondly, He's stating that His kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. It's not a worldly kingdom as we think of kingdoms. It does not have territorial boundaries. It is not protected by armies and navies. And the weapons that are assigned to us to fight in His kingdom are not guns and bullets. We don't wage war according to the flesh, the Apostle Paul tells us. For the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we fight with the weapon of God's truth. And as a spiritual kingdom, Christ's kingdom is unseen. We look forward to a city that has its foundations not here on earth, but we look for a city whose designer, whose builder is God. The United States of America, as wonderful as it is, is not our home of sweet delight. We desire a better country that is a heavenly one. We are citizens of heaven, citizens of Christ's everlasting kingdom. As a spiritual kingdom, Christ rules over our hearts. Across our souls, Christ has written property of Jesus Christ. He rules by bringing our hearts in submission to Himself. He will not share His rule with our pride, with our sin, and with our idolatry. He'll break us of our pride. He'll cause us to repent of our sin. He will remove from us our uh, idolatry. He remakes our hearts and changes our appetites. And He doesn't do it with a rod of iron. Rather, He woos us into submission by His unconditional and self-sacrificing love. When we talk about Christ's kingdom, we're not simply talking about the church. The church and Christ's kingdom are not one and the same. Certainly, the church is part of Christ's kingdom, But the kingdom of Jesus Christ is much more. It is the rule and reign of Christ. So for instance, the kingdom of Christ is a Christian witnessing to his or her neighbor. The kingdom of Christ is a Christian confronting dishonesty in the workplace. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ is a Christian serving in politics to make God-honoring laws. The kingdom of Christ is a Christian giving money to a missionary who is preaching the gospel in a difficult setting. We see evidence of the churches shrinking here in America. But in nations and in cultures where the church is outlawed, where they are not allowed to meet as a church, we see Christianity multiplying. The kingdom of Christ is always moving forward because Christ is always ruling in the hearts of His people. The kingdoms of the earth will try and stop or destroy the kingdom of Christ, but Christ's kingdom will always continue to grow. 
Daniel 3 speaks of the kingdom of God that will never be destroyed and will itself destroy all the great nations of the earth. Daniel 3, verses 44 and 45, The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw, that stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. And each of those bronze, silver, iron, gold, they represented different kingdoms. (coughs) So I want you to look at verse 37, and we are getting very close to the end. Verse 37. Then Pilate said to Jesus, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So Jesus tells Pilate that his kingdom, uh, that uh, uh, Jesus tells Pilate that his kingdom is a king, kingdom of truth. Jesus is saying, in effect, that truth is a preeminent characteristic of his kingdom. He rules us, as I said, not with a rod of iron. His rod of iron, if you read Psalm two is reserved for the rebellious nations that refuse to submit to Him. Rather, He rules us by the word of truth, by the word of His truth. He subdues our hearts to His truth. And as we receive His truth, we receive His peace and His joy. Every believer, having received Christ's truth, yearns to be purged of all hypocrisy and everything false Because Christ is the King of truth. Christ says in verse 37, Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Every believer receives the truth of Christ uh, and receives the truth of His death and His resurrection that uh, that He died and uh, that He was uh, raised in power for our benefit. We believe those things. Every believer receives the truth about our dreadfully uh, sinful condition. And we know that we deserve nothing but hell forever. But I have found that as believers settle into their faith, although they believe these things, they begin to feel proud about their faith. They have a, a, a few good months as a new Christian, maybe even a few good years. And then pride begins to settle in. They're ashamed when they sin. They're receiving, they've made progress and they're receiving attention from other people because of their progress they've made as a Christian, because of their progress and their growth in grace. So when they stumble in sin, instead of being children of God, instead of being um, servants under King Jesus, the King of truth, what they do is they, they cover up their sin. They hide it from the view of everyone else. And as they hide it, the sin becomes tolerated and it's allowed to remain. And it grows and it becomes more ingrained. And soon, a citizen of the kingdom of truth is telling lies. 
And that leads to the truth being less precious. You belong to King Jesus, the King of truth. Flee to Him if you are covering up sins and telling lies. He says again in verse 37, Everyone who is of the truth listens to My voice. Christ's kingdom is not only a kingdom of truth, it's also a kingdom of salvation. The truth He came to bear witness to is the truth about Himself as the Son of God who became man in order to die on the cross for sinners. He saves sinners. Uncover your heart to Him because He loves sinners. He receives sinners. But He rejects the prideful and the liars. Only He who is of the truth listens to His voice. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, You indeed are the King of truth. And everything is uncovered and laid bare before You to whom we have to give account. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an accounting of everything we have done, everything we have said, everything we have thought, everything we have desired. Lord, if Your salvation was not full and complete, none of us would be able to stand in Your presence. And so we flee to You. Cover us in Your righteousness. Forgive us of our sins. And help us to listen to Your voice. Because only He who is of the truth listens to Your voice. We pray in Your name. Amen.